Good evening, everybody. My name is Rich Bruckner. I'm an alcoholic. And um, a special welcome to the uh, two new folks joining us. There's uh, nothing better than that. I was uh, separated from alcohol, I'm guessing, about your age um, on August the 30th of 04. So I'm right now in my 12th year of sobriety. Um, I say that very carefully because that's what happened to me and, and the topic. Uh, how, how this is going to work is I'm going to talk until from now until 9.30 on powerlessness. Jerry's going to go till midnight and, and then I'm going to filibuster into the morning. Now. Um, we're we're going to go a half hour. We're going to have a nice break and um, hopefully stay together. The mind can't absorb what the butt can't handle, right? And... Uh, I was taught maybe the most important thing in AA is to stand up to be seen, speak up to be heard, and shut up to be appreciated. Um, but why I say I was separated from alcohol is we're talking about powerlessness. And if I said anything other than that, some of the things I sometimes hear said in meetings, you know, I quit drinking on August the 30th. That implies that I did something, that I have power, choice, and control over when I drink. And that on August the 29th, the truth is I was drunk as a monkey. And on August the 30th, I didn't have to take a drink all day. There's no step for that. I don't know how it happened. Um, you know, th this power that we talk about, I mean, something probably the greatest thing in my life happened on, on that day that I, that I could think of. And I get excited uh, when I talk about that because that was the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous for me in, in that moment. Um, and for me to say anything else about that moment, I think, would be really, really arrogant as well as untrue. Uh, I didn't put the plug in the jug. I didn't make a decision. Um, I've sometimes heard my best thinking brought me to you. Um, no, you know, none of that. Um, I, I kept getting drunk over and over again, no matter what I came up with. And when I talk about powerless, I'm talking about the word very, very literally as pertains to alcohol. Uh, I've had two sponsors so far. The first was a man named Jim, whose sponsor uh, was a man named Clarence Snyder, who was sponsored by Dr. Bob Smith. And I only tell you that because uh, that line of sponsorship, we do things really simply. And he said, powerless, would you agree that that means less power? I was like, yes, Jim. <laughs> yeah. And I don't really look at it. There's, I'm not getting any deeper than that for the rest of... Uh, of this talk, you know. So when I'm talking about it, you're looking at a guy who has less power than is required to manage my most sincere desire to never take another drink. That's it. And, uh, you know, he's talked about the step and how that was laid out for me when we got to that point. Um, and, and the way that I got to that point, I'm going to tell you about because it's important and I only know of one way to get to where it makes any sense and that's through drinking. Uh, there, there's no step, there's no part of the chapter working with others that, you know, says we explain it to people. Until, I mean, the first step, you just have to drink a lot to, to, to get it and, and to go, okay. And I think that that's kind of the sum total of, of, of step one and getting to that place where I've had enough to drink, where I'm out of ideas about how I'm going to do it myself. And AA is an awesome program of action. That's what we're going to talk about all weekend is this program of action. But it's only a good program of action for people that are done with theirs. Um, if you still have one, I could promise, you know, like I wasn't going to try yours until I was done with mine. Because uh, the definition of a good idea means I thought of it, right? And I've never had an idea that I thought was bad. And 
so I had to exhaust all of those and then I go okay I'll try yours and he said well the second part of the step if you have less power uh, what about this unmanageable thing over here can you think of any decision in your life that you've tried over and over and over and over again I said well yeah Jim that I'm never ever going to drink again and he said, well, how are you doing managing that decision? Well, not very good, Jim, right? So that's what you're looking at, you know, as a guy that's got less power than is required to manage my most sincere decision uh, to never take another drink. And that's why I'm here tonight is because I don't ever want to take another drink. And I know that I can't do that alone. Uh, grew up in Baltimore, Maryland. Nobody in my family drinks. Um, no mom, no dad, no aunt, uncle, grandparents. Um, <laughs> Any genetic theories of alcoholism, rock on, I'm no doctor, you know. Uh, my sponsor tells me I don't have too much even left. But, um, and I spent a lot of time trying to figure out, you know, why I couldn't stop drinking, how did I get this thing, alcoholism, and what's it all about. Uh, and that was a lot of wasted time. It turns out that there's nothing more useless than how you became alcoholic, and whether it's genetic or this or that. And, my sponsor said, I think that it happened to you because you drank too much. And I said, okay, we'll go with that. And, and that's, again, as deep as I've gotten on that issue. It's sort of like a guy or a gal whose house is on fire, this alcoholism thing. All, everything precious to me is inside this house. And it's burning to the ground in front of my eyes. But the fire trucks are there, the hook and ladder, the, they've got that hose you know, all hooked up to the hydrant. The neighbors are there. That's you guys. You know how they run that hose through the fire hydrant, through the neighbor's lawn. You all are holding it. But I'm up front. I control that nozzle. And you're screaming at me. Rich, shoot the hose. Please, shoot the hose. Shoot the hose. And I'm up in front watching everything in life burn to the ground. And I'm going, well, hold on a second. We're going to shoot this hose as soon as we figure out how this fire started, right? And, and who cares how the fire started? Um, I do know that I can remember my first drink. Uh, if that, you know, has happened for anyone here, if, if I was to come from Ocean City uh, and, and to spend four hours coming through that bridge tunnel and sitting in that Virginia Beach 64 split area with the light rain, you know what that does to that area, right? And, and I was to reflect on my first Coca-Cola to come tell you about that tonight, uh, you'd have to get somebody else. It was a non-event in my life. I don't know when it took place. Uh, if you said, we want to hear about your first orange juice, um, I got nothing for you. I'm, I'm not sure when that happened. Um, so the fact that I can even remember this first drink of alcohol tells you that there's something significantly different about my relationship with alcohol than other beverages. And the school I went to, we had a really, it was a long bus ride. My parents uh, wanted me to go to this private school after third grade, which I was mad at them for, by the way, for the next 20 years. I, I, I don't know that that's a requirement to like be mad at your parents to be an alcoholic, but I've sponsored enough of us that it seems like it's a pretty common thing. And that was their big sin, by the way. My parents loved the heck out of me and were wonderful parents. And you know what they wanted, I found out. You know why they did that? They took me out of that public school. In my mind, they ripped me, you know, third grader, they ripped me away from all my friends on purpose. Put me on this school bus 45 minutes each way, with these kids that made fun of me, they called me farm boy, redneck. 
things like that. I lived on a little horse farm outside of Baltimore. I had chores in the morning. Um, what they wanted was they wanted me to have a better chance at life than they ever had. They wanted me to have a better education than them. They wanted me to maybe have a nicer life than them. And I hate them for it for the next 20 years that they sent me to this place. And on the bus, uh, there, there's a kid named Reed Carter. Uh, one day I'm going to run into him if I keep saying his name. And um, his job, he was a little bit older than me. And I, I, I don't know if they do this in Norfolk. They assign you like an older kid whose job it is to beat you up every day for something. And, and Reed would do that to me. And, um, and on this school bus ride, there was a girl that looked like a lot of you that are here that was just really put together, good looking girl. And uh, her name was Nikki, and I like Nikki, and I didn't know how to tell Nikki I like Nikki. I didn't know how to ask her out or take her to a dance or to dance. I mean, I got nothing, you know, with, with women. And I'm in like seventh grade, I think. Couldn't swear on it. And some of the older guys, this one dad said, you want to skip last class and do some drinking? And I'd never skipped any class and I'd never done any drinking. But out of my mouth, I said, you bet, like I'd been doing it for years. And they said, what do you drink? And I said, bourbon. And I don't know where that came from. Um, and I wish it was true because, I mean, that would be like a pretty tough, cool story in Alcoholics Anonymous. And this is how you also know. Uh, that I wasn't shooting for AA and oh boy, maybe one day at 42 I'm going to come to Norfolk and tell them about my pathetic drinking, right? This just wasn't in the cards because this would have been different, I promise. We didn't have bourbon. You know what those guys had? Peach schnapps, you know? The, the new girl's laughing at me, see? It's lame. It's just lame. And we all know that that's lame. But what makes me one of you is not what it did to me. It's not how often I drank it. It's not how long I drank it. It's not how much I spilled. It's none of the stuff that happened after drinking. It's what it did for me that makes me one of you. That's why I get to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous because alcohol has a special effect on me that it doesn't to the other nine out of 10 people on planet Earth, allegedly. I don't know, they, they say one out of 10, or whoever they, right, we'll get to them. Um, <laughs> But I know that what alcohol does for me, it's amazing what I'm willing to let it do to me in exchange, right, for what it does for me. And on that day, I'm drinking with those older fellows. They're passing the peach schnapps around, and it goes down and does its thing. And I go into the little boy's room, and I'm feeling pretty tough all of a sudden. And somehow, I, you know, I'm in there, and I'm thinking to myself, there's like a hierarchy on the school bus. I don't know. I'll see it, but nodding if they do this here or not. Like the older kids sit in the back of the school bus and it's a social hierarchy. Like if you cross the, the middle of the school bus and go back where the older kids are and you don't belong there, you take a beating. And that's where Nikki would sit because she was, you know, a good looking chick so she could do what she wanted. And I'm not supposed to be back there. But on this day, and I never went back there because I knew I'd get a beating and Reed would beat me anyways. But on this day, I'm standing there in, in the boys' room, and all of a sudden I have this intuitive thought or hunch, right, where I just intuitively know how to handle this situation with Nikki that used to baffle me. And I get on the bus, and I'm going to sit next to Nikki today with this peach schnapps in me, and I start walking to the back of the school bus. Reed gets up to give me my daily beating, and as he's getting to his feet, I give him everything I got in me, and he goes down and out on this bus seat, and the school bus gets really, really quiet. And I sit down next to Nikki, and I'm looking at Nikki. She's looking at me. I'm looking at Nikki, and she's looking at me. And I have this feeling that comes over me in that silence that, like, finally, you know, you know who I am. Some long overdue respect. 
And I didn't know how good it felt to get out that resentment on, you know, I, I didn't even know that's what I had until I got here. But boy, it felt good when he went down and out. And we got to Nikki's bus stop. And when she got off her bus stop, she leaned over and she gave me this little kiss that maybe some of you guys will remember. It was half on my lips and half on my cheek. And it was different than my aunts and my mom when they kissed me. I mean, I felt it in my toes. It was, it was remarkable. And, uh, and I went in my house after we got to my bus stop, and I was obviously drunk. And my parents, I mean, I come from a household of morality, integrity, values, a whole lot of love. And, um, and I was in big trouble. They left me in the bathroom. I was getting sick all night, peach schnapps. Turns out that syrupy stuff is way better one way than the other. And they leave me in there to teach me a lesson. And that's another thing about an alcoholic of my variety. I was going to have... That was the first of a whole lot of very well-meaning people that were going to try to teach me a lesson. And those things go right by an alcoholic of my type. Uh, they might catch the attention, right, of an average or temperate drinker, uh, but not somebody who's full-blown, um, you know, powerless over this deal. And I sleep in there in, in that alcoholic position that many of us know, curled up with our neck in like a position next, don't even go next to the toilet. and. When I wake up, I'm sick as a dog. I don't ever remember feeling that sick. And I'm grounded forever, which is a big deal in seventh grade. You don't know when the end is. And it's like life without parole when you get older. Um, indefinite sentences are scary to me. Um, and I'm just thinking, like, my God, you're sick as a dog and you're grounded forever. Are you ever going to do any more of that drinking? And it was all of about two seconds. It was like, of course you are. Of course, are you kidding me? Being sick as a dog and grounded forever is a really small price to pay for what I had going on on that school bus yesterday with Nikki and Reed and that respect and all of that somehow inside of me. Um, I, I wish I could find words better than Bill's, but I can't. What happened with my relationship with alcohol is it was set in flight, much like a boomerang that was gonna give me so much for so long, but one day turn in flight come back and nearly shred me to ribbons. And the problem was is that it was gonna, on that boomerang's way back, it was gonna take from me every bit of morality, every bit of integrity, but it was gonna do it so slowly, one drink at a time, that I didn't even know it was happening. And it says in our book that often the alcoholic, me, right, by the time that I even clue in that this is a problem, that I've slipped past this point of human aid. Right? I've entered that realm of, of, of powerlessness where my most sincere desire to not drink is, is to no avail. I can make it a week, a month, three months. Um, and I'm become, it just goes as much as we do cornfield drinking in high school. I, I rolled a CJ7 one time with, I, I forget if I had three or four friends packed into that thing. Uh, what we do in high school in, in Maryland was... Um, I, was, I played a lot of sports. That was my saving grace that kept me in, in, in school. My mind made that a story up that they kept me in school because they needed me for sports, right? That's why they let me there. Um, I don't know that any of that's true, but that, that's what happened up here. And, uh, and then we do this team cornfield drinking. You get a keg of beer. You build a fire in a cornfield, and, you know, and everybody has fun. And I'm driving from one field to another. I got the keg of beer, the guys in there, and I came around a turn on a road called Falls Road out in Hunt Valley, Maryland, a little bit too sharp and too fast. CJ7 has a narrow wheelbase. I think it's why they stopped making them. And that thing went, <laughs> I just 
three times, I'm told the thing rolled, and we're all scattered about the cornfield, and we're busted up and scraped up, and there's like a broken ankle, but no serious injury. That might capture, you know, capture the attention of an average, even a heavy drinker, like, holy cow, almost killed my, my four best friends, almost took myself that, whoa, right past me. You know what I think? The thought that goes through my head is, did you see that? That was some good drunk driving right there. That was NASCAR type stuff. To roll the car three times, boom, land on my feet, walk away. I'm a good drunk driver, right? And I'm embarrassed to tell you that I've had multiple barroom conversations uh, on that topic. Of uh, I've actually said the sentence. It's embarrassing how stupid this sounds. But I have said more than once, I drive better drunk than sober. And worse than that, I tell you why. Because here's what I do. You get the windows three quarters of the way down, the wind's blowing, you light a cigarette, you get your left elbow propped on the, you know, the side of the car door so it stays straight, and you lock it on the steering wheel, you close your right eye, you set the left eye on the thing, keep the cigarette going in case you get pulled over so there's smoke, they smell that, and not the, not the alcohol. You want to keep the music down but on. You, know, you lock that there, the right hand's here with the cigarette. Right? And, and I could go through this you know, elaborate system. Some of you are nodding your heads. You all sitting next to me in the bar, share with me your system of getting home. Um, and if you're smiling or nodding or have a system for drunk driving, uh, welcome to AA. I, I don't know. When I talk about this with like some of the rest of my family, they just are like, a system for drunk? No, we don't have a system, right? Um, so that's a clue maybe that uh, you might be in the right place. You're with the other folks that had systems uh, for drunk driving. I get to college, I'm drinking as much as I can in college. I have two-a-day soccer practices. Um, I, I end up getting a scholarship to play soccer out at the University of San Diego. Uh, my parents had a house in Ocean City, Maryland growing up. My dad taught me to surf from before I could walk. Uh, I don't remember learning how to surf. To this day, it's my favorite thing in the world. Um, I, I bet my wife and I surf probably 300 out of 365 days a year. I mean, it's just, it's our thing. And uh, so those were my college requirements. I wanted to play Division One ball, and I wanted to be able to surf. So the University of San Diego offered me a scholarship that seemed to meet all those criteria. Uh, off I go. It was also the wonderful part about that is it was as far as you could go without Hawaii <laughs> and still be in the United States and be away from those parents with their good values and morality and rules in that house. Um, now, I overlooked in this decision an important thing. It was a Jesuit college. I didn't know what the Jesuits were, and I could, care, I could have cared less at the time. I, I was a kid, like, just running slash, you know, going to college. And um, so I'm out there, and I'm in the college, and I'm, I, I have morning practice, two-a-day practices at a, at a Division I school, and I have these Jesuit classes. I get assigned a lady. She's called an academic advisor. Um, and that sounds pretty neutral maybe to you folks, but not to me. That's another thing about an alcoholic of my variety. What this lady's job was is all she was trying to do was to help me pick classes that maybe I'd get to graduate in four years. That's it. But I don't see it like that. And when I look back through our inventory, which we're going to talk about tomorrow, what I've learned about this, and it contributes to my powerlessness, is anybody in my whole life that's ever tried to help me, I think you're trying to hurt me. You're trying to tell me how to live my life, back off. It's my life, let me live it. 
And I don't know what that's all about, but I do know that it says defiance is the defining characteristic of the alcoholic. You know? And um, so she, she says, you need some other stuff other than these classes. We've got to get some other stuff on your resume. If you want to go on and do anything with your life, nobody really cares that you play soccer. And uh, well, what do you have in mind? And she said, we want to start an office of alcohol and drug education here on campus. And we want it to be founded by a student. It's going to be a peer counseling program where we get a student and then some other students eventually certified as a certified alcohol and drug counselor. Uh, they're going to find this. It's going to be called Campus Connections, uh, where there's going to be an office and you're going to can, you know, counsel students with alcohol and drug problems and in the evening so they don't have to talk to teachers or faculty members. It's student to student. We think it'll be the, the most effective if there's this identification among students and then she got to the part that I cared about. She said, this will look really good on your resume. And I don't know about you, but I've always known about looking good on paper. I don't necessarily like to do good, but I like to look good. And um, so now I've got my days getting busier. They, they get me certified. That eventually happens. They found that office. I'm the, you're looking at the founding father of the Office of Alcohol and Drug Education. It's on my resume to this day. Um, I, I know more about alcoholism than any human being should. I could tell you all about the Jelinek curve and the you know pancreas and liver's processing of alcohol into a simple sugar and how it breaks it down. You know, meanwhile, could you pour me another drink? I'm like drinking myself to death. One of the things that I have now noticed in this book, there is no chapter called In the Knowing. It does not help me at all. As powerless as I am, imagine that. To know all about alcoholism while I'm dying from it. And that's what's going on in my days getting busy and I have morning soccer practice and then these Jesuit classes and then on the soccer team are these four other guys that are on scholarship like me and they're these uh, they're right across the border. They're from Tijuana, Mexico, which was like 22 miles from my college. Uh, these four Mexican fellows, they were awesome soccer players, nice guys. Each one of them had about 36 cousins apiece. And um, they knew how to get this green stuff that the, the rich kids at the college that weren't on scholarship, right, that they liked to smoke and I, I liked to drink. And I'd also picked up at this college that I don't know where this came from, uh, some inward knowing that I've had. If I was going to be able to ask out any of you women, it was going to have to be first class. And I don't know why I knew this, but I just knew from deep down inside that none of you were going to want anything to do with me unless I could take you out first class. There was no way you were going to like me for me. There was going to have to be, I was going to have to have a nice car, it was going to have to be a nice restaurant, there was going to have to be some nice flowers, I was going to have to get you a nice gift, I was going to need a nice house to bring you back to. I was just somehow inherently not good enough as is, right? And, uh, and that, uh, that set me on a course, again, much like Bill and my drinking, to acquire some stuff. Uh, so now my day's getting really busy, right? I got, I got the morning practice, I got Jesuit classes, afternoon practice, then I get a little bit where I got to drink a lot, as fast as I can, uh, because I have the worst part of my day, which was 7 to 10 p.m., uh, where I have to counsel you pathetic people on your alcohol problems, and I'm giving out the schedules of AA. By the way, if anybody's you know struggling with the sobriety thing, um, I understand stopping everything at once is very difficult. Come see me in my dorm room after office hours, and we'll we'll get you set up with some of the other stuff to mellow you out a little bit. And um, and then I got to drink a whole lot to fall asleep at night. This eventually, by my senior year, I'd switched uh, from bringing in the green stuff to the white stuff. 
Uh, it's about now I'll tell you what my life looks like by I'm halfway through my senior year of college. I'm drinking every single day as much as I can to live with myself. Our book says that often the alcoholic lives a double life. If I'd have just had two going on, that would have been awesome. Uh, I could tell you that if any two people that knew me in my life were in the same room at the same time, there was going to be trouble. If my mother talked to my little sister, I have one little sister, she's three years younger. If they talked, I was going to be in big trouble because I had different stories going with both of them. If my parents talked to the registrar's office about which classes I was actually taking, there was going to be trouble. If the registrar's office talked to the soccer coach to find out what my grades really were, trouble. If you know my girlfriend had talked to my other girlfriend, big trouble. Um, like I have to keep everybody separated in my whole life, and that takes a whole lot of energy. You have to drink a lot to fall asleep. I tell you, and I honestly believe that I'd have passed a lie detector. I drink as much as I do to fall asleep. If your life was as busy as mine and you had as much going on as I did, you'd need to drink like me too. And I actually you know, believe that to, to be true. And I thought I was choosing to drink. I thought that it was my own. I, I had no idea uh, that I was drinking to overcome an obsession far beyond anything I could control. And that once it was in me, uh, it was in me. Right? And we all know what happens then, that I have this you know, physical allergy to alcohol. I didn't know that until I got to you folks. This guy Silkworth saved my life. What this physical allergy looks like, and um, I mean, if I have so much as one drink, the first drink asks for a second. Sure, love a second. The second begs for a third. The third insists on a fourth. The fourth demands a fifth. And I want the sixth drink more than I ever wanted the first drink. And that's at 2 o'clock in the morning when that bartender's saying it's last call. It's time to go. And I'm arguing. Give me two more and a shot to back it up. Let me buy that bottle back there. I mean, it's a, it's a $15 bottle, dollar bottle of liquor, and I'm getting out a $50 bill. And they're saying, sorry, we don't have a package license. We can't sell you that bottle. You have to go home now. It's 2.15. Get out of here. And I'm going, give me the bottle. And I've been there all night anyways. I had no idea what that was all about until I got to you. But by my senior year, I'm halfway through. And... Uh, I bought my first house. It was 423 Nautilus Street in La Jolla, California, which is one of the most beautiful communities that I've ever been to to this day. It's the third house up on the right from Winden Sea Beach, which is one of the greatest surf spots in this country, but I don't surf anymore because I drink. And when I drink, all I do is drink. Surfing takes place in the morning when the sun's coming up and the wind is offshore and that ocean's nice and calm and the top of the wave is blowing back and the dolphins are going past, and I don't wake up during that time of day anymore because when I'm drinking, I'm just drinking, if I'd even been to bed from the night before. And, uh, and I'm dating. I'm driving a silver BMW. had a number on the back to let you know it was one of those European ones that they don't even sell here. I had to have it shipped from Europe because um, I'm that important. And I'm living in that house, and I'm dating the prettiest girl at the college, or at least that's what you all thought, so I dated her. I still don't know if I ever liked her. And... Um, and that's how I'm living my life, is to impress some folks that, that I don't know and, and, or care about. And uh, it's early in the morning. That, that poor girl was there with me. I remember eating cereal 
and boom, 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 every single door and window in that house came down. And the next thing you know, I was on my stomach, and they were putting those plastic zip ties on, and I was getting hauled off to the federal penitentiary in San Diego. It's the Metropolitan Correction Center. They call it MCC. And I'd never been to a federal penitentiary. I'd been arrested a lot through high school. My parents would leave me there for the weekend. You know why they did that, right? To teach me a lesson. Um, all that was for a guy like me was a better story on Monday. Like, guess what I did this weekend? You know, I thought it landed me like some street guy spent the weekend in jail, man. Like, I'm so like twisted that I think that's cool. Um, so I, I've been to jail. I want to make clear for the rest of the weekend. Um, I'm not a prison guy. I know there's a lot of prison guys in NAA. I'm a jail guy. I specialize in jail. I do like 60-day sentences, 90 days, a year. Um, in, in Maryland, you know, jail's up to 18 months, and then you go to prison. Uh, I don't care for those lengthy sentences. There's some people in AA that strive on that level of structure. That's not for me. Uh, I'll do 30-day sentences, six-month sentences. I've got no problem with those. They don't phase me at all. Uh, in fact, I was so stupid that when I look back, I've been arrested to this day, uh, and, and hopefully that, that's it, by God, by God 36 times, um, and I, I just do jail. You know, I, what I didn't realize is, is that when you add all that up, I was doing like a life sentence on the installment program, like, like 60 days at a time, thinking that I'm beating the system. You know, I'm beating the system somehow. Just getting these little sentences, you know, and you add them all up and, and, and I wasn't beating anything. Uh, but anyways, I, I, I'm in there and uh, I go to an AA, a couple of AA meetings inside that penitentiary. I mean, it was, there was no lack of knowing. I mean, I'm an alcohol counselor that routinely sends you all to AA. Um, and I go in the penitentiary and get out of the cell. Uh, just to let you know how powerless, how warped the thinking was of this alcoholic. Um, a couple guys would come, you know, dressed like I am tonight. And uh, I mean, what's lamer than a couple of guys dressed like, uh, you know, ties, just squares. Because um, when you're cool, you know, I'm sitting at the jail, you got to cross your arm, you got a hat down, you got to like, look under it and, you know, you got to be tough and stuff. And I'm thinking, as they're taking me back to the cell, <laughs> and... By, by the way, the, the San Diego Union Tribune, which is the newspaper, and the Los Angeles Times, when I got arrested, they both ran a headline that my mother was kind enough to save for me. Uh, it said, Jesuit student, 27 kilos of cocaine. And there's these things called the federal sentencing guidelines that when you look at them, it's the number of times that you've been arrested and what you were caught with. And in my case, um, it was like 46 to 60 years. And it's what the judge had to sentence me to. And, I, and that caught my attention because I'm not a prison guy, I'm a jail guy. And uh, so I'm sitting in there and, and facing that, right? And I'm not given any bond. They're like, they just, they, they knew the bond, I'd be gone. So I'm in there waiting for trial. I'm going to the AA. A couple of guys come in to carry the wonderful message of AA to me. And as I'm going back to the cell, the thought that goes through my mind is, man, those two suckers really got it bad. They can never drink again. Someday I'm going to get out of here, and those two, they can never drink again. Like, they drew the short straw in this scenario. I mean, that's, right? That's pretty twisted. Uh, I was in there about nine, a little over nine months, uh, nine months and a week, and the case, it turned out that the DEA agents had some problems of honesty of their own on the affidavit. Uh, the search of the house was determined to be illegal. 
it was thrown out. I'd love to tell you that I walked out of there a free man, but anybody that's ever been in the penitentiary knows what you are when you get out, and that's thirsty. And uh, by this point, alcohol owns me lock, stock, and barrel. I can't stay where I am for a whole lot of reasons. There's people looking for me for a whole lot of reasons. I can't come back home. I burned every relationship in my life by this point. Uh, those parents, you know, they just couldn't believe where I, I, I ended up. And the journey to get there was not nearly as short or simple. There was a whole lot of those jail visits and can you bond me out and just one last time, please, it's only $5,000. The lawyer only needs 2500 Can you send me some money for books? I want to take an extra class. Oh, I swear I'm really taking the extra class. Just can you please, can you please send one more check? Can you ask Uncle Chip, does he have any more? You know, blah, 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 blah. Because that's the type of alcoholic I am. My powerlessness sucks everybody that loves me dry. And the more you love me, God bless you. I'll turn every hair on your head gray and not feel bad about it. The more you love me, the more I take from you. I'm a, I'm a user and a taker. And, um, and I start bouncing around from Steamboat, Colorado to a place, Boulder, Colorado, to over to a town, um, Ketchum, Idaho, Sun Valley, I Ketchum, Idaho, and from Idaho, um, to, to Utah and, and all I'm doing is I'm just drinking to forget about everything that's happened and that's not working and I don't want to drink and I can't drink and I can't not drink and when I drink I get more warrants uh, because that's what happens when somebody likes me drinks I'm a, I'm a warrant drinker uh, nobody's ever like reported to me the next day the nice stuff I did while I was drunk last night like you were up at the grocery store unloading groceries for little old ladies and helping them across the street and there was never any reports of behavior like that um, when I get warrants I run because I want you to think I'm tough but I'm really a coward tough guys face the music I run all this eventually lands me, you know, we're tough guys, you know, federal government had seized everything, every bank account, car, houses, everything. I'm just, alcohol just, I, I, I don't have enough time to tell you how much it owns me. It, now I hope I don't gross anybody. Every, I would wake up when alcohol told me I was waking up. It would dictate when my body physically would wake up to need more alcohol. And then there would be a rush to the bathroom and alcohol would dictate which end I addressed the toilet with. Right, and then it was just a, and then you get against that certain point where you hold can hold it down, and there was that that I called it the morning ballet of me versus the booze down up down up until you could eventually hold some down, and then it would you know I could get to a place where I could where I could function, and I wind up where all big shot you know tough guy want to be you know drug dealers wind up when everything's gone and that's back on my mom's couch in Ocean City, Maryland, and. Um, don't laugh at me because you might be a mom's. There's mom's couch people all over AA. It's a popular place to start sobriety. And there's only one rule there. You can stay here as long as you want, as long as you don't drink. Right? That's, we all know the rule. And I was able to uh, abide by that rule for about two and a half weeks. And I can tell everybody here with everything in my being, there was nothing more I wanted. I was never, ever, ever, ever going to take another drink. I couldn't even believe she gave me another chance. And um, that's how long it took. She eventually had to get a restraining order. I wasn't allowed 100 yards of her home. For her, she's a little retired school teacher. She taught first grade. She could tell you how many kids she's taught to read to this day. It's in the thousands. She taught for 36 years. Her whole life was about service to others. She's got this modest pension with the restraining order of the house. 
three o'clock in the morning, morning, morning terror and madness were on, right? Bill talks about it in his story. I do a residential burglary on my mom's house under those conditions because uh, that's who tough guys rob, not robbing you. You might hurt me. Um, tough guys rob their mother. And um, I break in. The door's dead bolted. She's got the restraining order. She sleeps with her little purse under the bed. I'm on my stomach at about 3 a.m. doing my best, like, commando crawl across my mom's bedroom floor. I'm reaching underneath her bed for the purse, and her eyes how she wakes up. And her eyes come off the side of the bed and look down at her son, 29 years old, reaching under for her little pension. And she says, Rich, take it. Would you just take it? And that's where she was with me. Just take it. And I'd love to tell you that I didn't, but you know I did because uh, I was powerless to do anything else. And this goes on and on and on and on. And anybody in this room could do this talk on, on power and how my most sincere desire to not drink was to absolutely no avail. It's, it, it's the number one thing that you know, brings us here and, and together. I've heard that the average seat in Alcoholics Anonymous uh, costs over $100,000. Uh, and that's if you add up every single drink we took, every single outside issue, every single lawyer, every single car we totaled, every alimony check, every child support, you know, all of the just the damage, the wreckage. Uh, that, that, that's out there. This is an expensive step. You know, step one is the mo- it's the most expensive <laughs> step. These seats, I mean, we have all paid for them dearly, as I'm sure we're each individually reflecting on the price tag of a metal folding chair. I mean, these are high-end AA seats here. Um, normally, I mean, it is the most expensive metal folding chair I've ever sat in, and I, I don't want to give the thing up. I also don't want to keep... Uh, keep going and beating the horse. I think we could all tell these stories. And that gets me to a place, and it's step one's depressing. I hope yours is. I hope that, you know, I think that I've had the worst bottom in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I hope you feel that way about yours. You know, and I'm not doing that in a comparing fashion. I hope you get the point of that is, I, I believe there's only one bottom in Alcoholics Anonymous. We all get to that exact same place where I can't take one more drink and I can't live one more moment without a drink. And that whole set of feelings that goes with that. And then we all start adding the details on that Christmas tree that's just my ego decorating my bottom. You know, oh, I have a severe bottom. I'm a high bottom. I'm a low bottom. Right? Guess what? Whatever set of feelings got you to that exact place, uh, I know how you felt. I know exactly how you felt. And uh, Welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank God step one's the only depressing one. And we're going to get to where we make a decision and get out of this mess. Thank you. (laughs) Dave, where are you going? Just a little bit. Feel free. I'll just make sure nobody misses any of this. That's right. I'm Jerry Weaver. I'm an alcoholic. Good to be here uh, tonight. Sobriety Day is July 2nd, 1989. My home group is a group called There is a Solution. We meet in Holly Springs, North Carolina, just outside of Raleigh, on Tuesdays and Thursday nights at uh, 7 o'clock. So if you're ever in the Raleigh area, come check us out. Good group of alcoholics. It's good to be here tonight. Good to be sober. Good to be in my right mind. Good to hear Rich talk. Excellent job. Thank you. Um, Couple things real quick. The uh, I really appreciate the name of your group. 
simple actions. That's uh, seems like simple actions are, are disappearing in Alcoholics Anonymous nowadays. I'm gonna try not to get up on a soapbox, um, but uh, God, I swear I sponsor some people. I try to give them some simple direction. They're like, it's got to be more complicated than that, Jerry. There's got to be more to it. And I'm like, no, this is it. Just do this, and uh, then they think, well, you don't know what you're talking about. Listen to all this other psycho babble and read some crazier books and. Um, but you know, I got sober on real simple actions. Going to my home group, getting there early and helping to sit up, sitting there and shutting up if I didn't have any experience on the topic, and staying afterwards and cleaning up, going out for dinner or coffee after the meeting. You know, next day, get up, pray, read something out of a meditation book, and just do it all over again. And um, it was, it's pretty simple. Um, and, and trying to, you know, to, to just be a good guy and try to live those steps as a way of life. And I was thinking about that as we were sitting there. Yesterday morning, uh, some many years later, yesterday morning I got up and I prayed and I read something out of a meditation book. I was nice to my wife. I showed up at my home group, made coffee. Makes the new people mad, but I'm going to fight you over the coffee pot. <laughs> but I, I showed them how to do it and I sat there in my at my home group and... I had a lot of experience on the topic, but they never called on me, and I didn't get mad. Maybe a little bit, and uh, <laughs> I stayed afterwards and helped clean up, and uh, went out for dinner afterwards, and stayed sober that day. And here I am. Um, Alcoholics Anonymous is, 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 is really, really, really simple. Uh, we, we tend to complicate it, and I tell you, you cannot, um, you can't teach powerlessness. You can't persuade somebody or talk somebody into knowing that they're powerless. We try to, but we try to talk people into them. We try to persuade people. I mean, you either know you're powerless or you don't. Now, you might come to understand that by listening to somebody share their experience. And, and that's what happened to me. I was sitting in a detox one day, and I had no, absolutely no knowledge of Alcoholics Anonymous, no knowledge of the 12 steps, no knowledge of alcoholism. I had no idea what was wrong with me. And a guy from Alcoholics Anonymous came in and sat down in front of me. And he did something very different than all those preachers, psychiatrists, family members, chief of police, high school principals, first sergeants did. He talked about himself. He didn't ask me any questions. He didn't tell me what he thought I ought to be doing. Nothing like that. He just, he talked about his drinking. And when he talked about his drinking, I could identify. And when he talked about how he drank and how he would wake up in funny places and not remember how he got there, I understood that. When he talked about how he would leave work and he, he had all these intentions of going straight home and he would stop by the bar or stop by the convenience store or stop by somebody's house with the intent of just taking a drink or two and he would do that, and the next thing you know, he'd end up in another state or he wouldn't make it home. I understood that. And, and that's how I you know, come, came to understand that, 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 I was, that I was powerless, by listening to another person share their, their experience, strength, and hope on that. And there was an identification there that I didn't get with anybody else. And the, you know, our literature is real clear on that. If you, if you, if you, even if you read some of the stories, like when uh, Dr. Bob and when Bill met him, you know, Bill, Dr. Bob was really the first person that Bill Wilson 
follow the instructions from, from Silkworth, and he talked about the hopelessness of the condition. He talked about the, 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 the craziness of, of the mind and the, the, the mental state that precedes the first drink before you take a drink. And prior to that, Bill was preaching to people, and no one ever stayed sober. And Silkworth told him, hey, you need to focus on the hopelessness of the condition. And Bill tried that on Bob, and Bob said that it was the first time he'd ever heard anybody speak his language. And that guy was a doctor, and he didn't understand the illness of alcoholism. He had to had some, un, you know, some unemployed stockbroker had to tell him, tell him about the, you know, the condition that he had. And um, and that's what our literature tells us to do. It tells us to talk about ourselves when we're helping somebody new. It tells us to talk about the hopelessness of our condition, what happened to us, and that's what happened to me. And that's how I, you know, I I, I had the experience of of learning that I was powerless by relate my experience to, to someone else's. And that, you know, it's very, very important. The literature says until that identification is met, little can be done for the alcoholic. That until I understand that, that little can be done. And if you don't suffer from alcoholism and someone talks to you about the hopelessness of, of their mind and they talk to you about when they took one drink, they took another and they kept taking them, you won't understand that if you're not an alcoholic. Um, and I'll tell you, I, um, I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I've been sober for, uh, I've been sober since my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't say that to impress anybody. I just, I just say that because it's a fact. It's part of my life and that I have found, what I have found here is that what we can have is permanent recovery. And that, uh, that revolving door that you hear about a lot, that, that, that does not have to happen to you unless you, unless you want it to. I've also been sober for well over half my life. I got sober when I was 22, and um, I've been fortunate enough to grow up in Alcoholics Anonymous. I've been fortunate enough to everything that I've ever done in life since I've gotten sober. I've been able to, to use the guidance of a sponsor, the guidance of a home group, and the principles that are in our literature to guide all of my, uh, all of my decisions, and not all of them, but just my life has been guided by Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, I'm just extremely grateful for that. I'm excited to be sober. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, Alcoholics Anonymous, I like the, 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 the title of your thing here, Sober Living, because that's what Alcoholics Anonymous is. It's about living sober. It's about practicing it as a way of life, not just jumping in and out of a bunch of meetings or putting the plug in the jug. Or that. The, the worst one is, is uh, this falls in line with powerlessness. Uh, don't drink no matter what. You ever heard that? Damn, I drink no matter what. I mean, I don't. I got a guy in my home group who's been sober for a long time. He tells people, don't drink no matter what. He'll tell a new person that. I'm like, my God, if he could drink no matter what, he wouldn't be here tonight. I mean, he would have never. He would have never come in here. And then he likes saying, if your ass falls off, pick it up and take it to a meeting. Well, my God, we. <laughs> We had a guy in our group that gave that guy a wheelbarrow for uh, just for the heck of it because he kept. <laughs> it's a true story. He got he got a little upset about it. He ended up somebody ended up bringing it and putting it in my backyard. And I don't know, it's, it's still sitting out there. Uh, anyway, I'll get off track on you quick. Uh, I forgot what I was saying, but um, it's just good to be sober. I started drinking when I was twelve, and. It's actually, actually not true. I, uh, I discovered whiskey at the age of 12, and it lit me up like a firecracker, and my life changed. 
I can remember being real young, six, seven years old, and drinking beer that my grandfather had or my dad had or my uncle, and not really thinking much about it or liking the taste. Um, so I was a social drinker up to the age of 12. <laughs> and went, went right into full-blown alcoholism there in the, in the basement of a, of a house in Springfield, Virginia. Rich talked about it. I can remember that night just like it was tonight. I remember that, that, that drink. I remember almost everything about that night. Um, we were, you know, I was just curious about drinking. And I had seen what alcohol had done and the damage it had done to my family. I come from a long line of drinkers, a long line of, uh, of alcoholics, a long line of, of folks with mental illness. And I had seen the, you know, the damage that it had done and it wasn't unusual to, for people to drink and have parties and somebody get locked up, a gun go off in the house. And, <laughs> People would be leaving to go get people out of jail and bring them back, and it was, it was uh, some of that stuff was fun as a kid, uh, but but later on in the evening, you know, me and my brothers we'd get scared because of, of all the all the chaos and the fighting and stuff that was going on. But I can remember thinking, I'm never going to do that, never going to drink like that, never going to be like that. Age 12, I'm in the basement of a guy's house, and I start drinking Old Granddad Hunter Proof, and I'll tell you, my life changed. And I was, uh, I was a guy at that point that was full of fear, full of doubt, full of confusion. You hear people talk about how they have a hole in their stomach that can't, can't be filled by anything. And when I put that whiskey in me, it filled up. I mean, it, it, I was the king. I, I mean, I don't know how else to put it. it. I had a spiritual experience that night drinking that whiskey, and it gave me power. I mean, it, it literally gave me power that, that I could not develop on my own. I had different ideas about life. I had uh, different ideas about people. I had different ideas about myself. And later, I, late, the next morning I woke up in a pile of vomit. I couldn't remember everything that happened later on in the evening, so I blacked out. And I was just extremely sick. And normally if you get sick on something, you swear it off forever. Well, that my first thought was, my God, i got to get back down in that basement and drink some more. Really, I mean, that was my first thought. And, and, and I did, I, uh, it was either the next day or a day or two later, I, I, we started right back drinking whiskey and the same thing happened. Alcohol gave me power. It was, it was, uh, it was an absolute solution to, uh, to my fears and to all that isolation, that loneliness that I had as a, as a young kid. And I, uh, you know, I, I didn't, certainly didn't drink every day from that, that point on. Uh, but but my life changed. The direction of my life changed, and that I I, I mean I uh, I looked for every opportunity to to drink. I became extremely rebellious, chaotic, and you know looking back on it, my as a as a teenage young teenager, my drinking was way different than most of the other folks that I was hanging out with. I mean I'd sneak out of the house late at night and drink by myself. I'd go to parties and. You know, back then we were, uh, I was just discovering strobe lights and heavy metal music and, <laughs> and, uh, and girls and uh, all that in the basement, you, uh, all that in the basement of a house. You know, we, it's funny, we, I discovered a lot of stuff that, I, that, that caused me troubles in the basement, in basements, and then I get sober and the first AA meeting I go, is in the basement of a church. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I, um, I mean, I don't know if I, I think, I believe what the literature says is that, that, you know, maybe I could have quit then, but why would you? 
I mean, why would you want to quit if that, if it did that much to you? And I think I just drank myself into, into alcoholism. I love the words in our literature that calls it an illness and a malady. Uh, don't call it anything else. And and uh, you know I you know I the more the more I stay sober, the more I, I kind of look back on all that. I mean, I, I had a spiritual illness, and I, I was spiritually deficient, and alcohol alcohol fixed that. You know, it it, it gave me power and. Uh, it, it, it made me. Uh, it gave me the strength to do things that I couldn't do when I when I was sober. It gave me. I mean, yeah. It gave me strength to talk to women. It gave me strength to uh, to go out in the public. It gave me strength to go into 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 school and punch the bully on the bus. Um, did all that stuff, and I couldn't do that when I wasn't drinking. I was just full of fear, and I was isolated. You know, and I would be. I'd be shut off from people, and 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 basically. You know, what happened to me was I, uh, as a young kid, I got in a lot of trouble. I got kicked, kicked out of two school systems for life, was asked not to come back. Yes, that's difficult to do, um, but it, it happened. And I, uh, I got into a bunch of trouble and was going to go to prison and ended up going into the, into the Air Force instead. I wasn't a complete idiot when they give you the option. I, uh, you know, I, and I can remember going into the service thinking that I was going to change and get some responsibility. They were gonna teach me some discipline. And uh, man, that didn't happen. I, uh, right out of basic training, I, first thing I did was I looked for the bar and I, uh, I, I looked for, for, for booze and I immediately got drunk. And everywhere they told you not to go, that's the first place we went, right? And uh, I, uh, I started blacking out a lot. I'd wake up places and people would have to tell me what I did the night before. I woke up one time and I, I, I was living in this dorm with 200 men. I woke up on the bathroom floor dressed up in some women's clothing one, night, <laughs> one morning and uh, that's never a good thing. Uh, you know, and, and, and don't remember any of it. And I, uh, I didn't think much about it. You know, I, just, I thought everybody had blackouts. You know, I thought that everybody woke up the next day and couldn't remember what happened to them. I know now that that doesn't happen to, to, to a whole lot of people. Um, and and I, was a, I, mean, I was a guy that just looked for things outside of me to fix me. And I lived in this fantasy world where I just thought one day my ship was going to come in and that everything was going to be just right. I was going to have the right woman. I was going to have enough money. I was going to live in the right place. I was going to have the right job. And all this stuff was just going to kind of happen. And... I'd have those thoughts, and then the, the next thought would be that life's out to get me. I've been given a bad deal, and everybody, you know, it's it, everything sucks. And I, I, I tried, you know, I got married at a young age thinking that was going to help me. And, uh, you know, I, I just had these ideas that if I can just fix the outsides, things are going to be different, and nothing ever changed. Um, and, and I continued to drink. And here, here's what... Um, you know, here's what powerlessness looks like to me, and and just you know, just through sharing my experience, I had uh, I had a, I had a lot of family and, and some friends that started talking to me about my drinking, and you know, I would just shut them down and say, you know what, you're the problem. You need to leave me alone. You know, get get out of my life. You know, if things get bad enough, I can stop, and things aren't bad enough. And I make money. I'll do what I want to do, and that that type of thing. And I um, here's what happened: was that 
this was like a, this would be like a typical typical week. I'd be at work and I'd leave work with the idea of going home, and I'd stop off at the, the barracks or I'd stop off at a convenience store with the intent of drinking a cup, getting a couple beers, and I'd call my wife up. No cell phones back then. I'd call my <laughs> wife up, and say, "Hey, yeah, we're working a little late. I'll uh, I'll be home in a little shortly." I'd start drinking, and man, it would get good to me, and I'd drink two or drink three, and then I'd get to the fourth one, and the time that I was said I was going to be home had expired, and we were past that, so I'd call back up, I'd tell another lie. Hey, I'm, you know, we, we're having a hard time on this airplane here, and it's going to be a couple more hours, so I'll, I'll be there, you know, shortly. And the night would go on, and next thing you know, it's three or four in the morning. And, you know, I'd, I'd walk into the house, and this was later into my drinking, you know, the dinner would be on the table, cold where she had cooked it and it was it was still sitting there and then I'd go into the bed, she'd be laying there, sometimes the sheets might be wet where she was crying and I'd lay down in the bed with my uniform on, boots and everything because I got to get up in about an hour to go to work. And I'd lay there and we would say nothing to each other because there was really nothing to say. And I'd pop up at, a, at, at 6 a.m. to drive back to to the base and I can remember I'd go into the bathroom and I would get like her lipstick and I'd write these notes on the mirror I'm sorry I'm not going to do it again or make these promises or I love you you know on and on and on and, and I'd make it to work just in rough shape looking terrible smelling like booze and I'd uh, I'd get through the roll call and then I have all these intentions of, of doing the right thing that day about 9 a.m. I'd call her from a payphone and apologize and tell her I'm, you know, I'm done forever. I'm, going, I'm coming straight home after work. 10.30 roll around, 11 o'clock, get close to lunchtime. My mind would, would shift. Man, I'm feeling a little better, right? Yeah, you're probably making a big deal out of nothing. And the next thing you know, I'd leave for lunch, I'd go get me a bottle of vodka or a bottle of Thunderbird wine, which depending on how much money I had, and I'd be off to the races again. And it, this was just, it was just like a vicious cycle. And I didn't understand what was wrong with me. And I started trying a lot of ways to, to, to quit drinking. I went to church and I, uh, uh, I, I shaved my head one time, thought that was gonna keep me sober. And I, uh, and I drank with this guy that was, I always thought he was a worse drinker than me. And he, one morning I came, showed up for roll call, and he, his head was shaved. I'm like, man, what's up with your head? And he had, anyway, he had hooked up with his organization that, that believed that the problems of man stems from their hair. And that, that their program of action, I don't think he said program of action, it just sounds, it sounds cool in AA, but they're... Their, act, their program of action was you shave your hair off and that signifies the old man dying or your old ideas dying. And when your hair grows back, you're reborn, you're given a new way to, you know, some new ideas. I'm like, my God, I need some of that. I, uh, I, I went home and shaved my head. And he was, we were, we, yeah. And I had gotten into a fight with a guy not long before that, and he had, he cracked me in the head with his big old with his hickory stick. So I had this big fresh scar on my head, and I uh, I looked like a complete idiot. Uh, I looked like Charles Manson walking around with that shaved head. And 
I would I, I we got on this kick of we were eating tomato sandwiches and eating plums and grapes and we thought that eating fruits like that was going to help us. And uh, yeah, it's craziness. I see some folks that tried to head shave in here. It don't it won't work. It won't work long term. Uh, it won't. I got I stayed sober for three days on it. Three days. Um, and man, I was just I was crazy. I'm walking around with a shaved head. I got that scar on me, and by this time I'm preaching to people. I got this new little pocket New Testament I'm carrying around with me, and I'm preaching to people at work. And there was a couple guys. There was one other guy that we drank with, and there was three of us that would go out a lot at lunch, and we'd get drunk, and we'd go work on airplanes. Just, I mean, absolutely just drunk, and. Uh, so on breaks and stuff, I'm pulling this New Testament out of my out of my pocket. I'm reading it to people, or I would sit over by myself and read it because if people, you know, think you're doing well, then you're doing well, right? And if you, you can give the the perception that you're doing well, then then well, you are doing well. And uh, this one guy, he's like, I mean, I was landed on him hard, and he asked me, he says, Hey, do you want to go to the house and get some lunch? Which was a legitimate question. We would, a lot of times we would go to his house and get lunch, but we would always drink. And uh, I was like, yeah, man, I'll go with you, but you know I don't drink anymore. He's like, yeah, that's no problem. He said, we'll just go make a sandwich and we'll come back. And on the way there, I'm laying it on him hard about how I've been saved and Jesus is on my side and you need to get some of this. And uh, I'm never going to drink again. My life is turned over and everything's perfect. And I mean, I'm serious about it. And he just kind of over driving. Yeah, okay, yeah. And I may read some scripture to him or something. And anyway, we get to his house and... You know, I have all this high resolve to do the right thing, and I'm, you know, everything's going to be good. And we get to his house, and we walk into his house, and literally we walk into his kitchen. He's like, hey, Jerry, you want a beer? I was like, yeah, I'll take this one. <laughs> that's, that's alcohol. That, that's, that's being powerless. That's, and those stories like that are all in our book, in our literature. I mean, I, you know, I, I didn't even think about it. I was like, yeah, I'll take this one, and then I was off to the races. And um, what happened was I just, I mean, story after story like that and not really knowing what's wrong with me. And I got suicidal and I, uh, I mean, I got extremely depressed and anxious and just thought that the world was out to get me and that the world would be better off without me. Attempted suicide three times. They tell me that I've died twice. Uh, I remember one of them. I'd, 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 I had this dog that had mange and the vet had given us this poison to kill mange on this dog. David will appreciate this story, but uh, I had this bright idea. This will tell you I'm not the smartest guy in the world. I had this bright idea that if it would kill mange, it would kill maybe it would kill a person. So I came home one night and I pulled a bunch of it up into a syringe and I shot it up my arm and laid down on the kitchen floor there in the house and went away from here for a little while and I won't bore you with all those details. Um, and. And I'll tell you, I did that just as easy as I'd go over and get a cup of coffee. It wasn't like, there was nothing dramatic about it. I didn't make any calls or any notes to anybody. I just wanted to check out. And I, obviously I, I didn't. Um, but that, what happened was that led to being in the hospital for five days. And my parents and my wife hiding it from the Air Force. They checked me into a civilian hospital under my brother's name, trying to hide it, and not knowing what was going to happen to me. 
And I can remember being discharged out of the hospital and literally having these conversations with my family. Man, there's no way I could go back to living that way after doing that, after going through that experience. I had been enlightened. You ever, you ever seen those shows on TV where the people have these near-death experiences and they, they go on to be saints or they go on to do real good things with their lives? That's kind of what I had in my mind, right? I was like, man, I had this outer-body experience. I'm going to, uh, I got something on my side now, right? And, uh, and I can remember just having those things, those, 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 uh, those thoughts. I mean, I knew I would never drink again after going through that experience. Here's alcoholism. I left Pope Air Force Base about three days later. Good day at work. I'm, I'm back going to church a few times. You know, that, that, that always gets the family, like, hopeful. Man, he's back in church. <laughs> Jerry's doing well. And uh, anyway, I left Pope Air Force Base and with the idea of going straight home. Nothing going on that day. Absolutely nothing. I'd leave, I'd leave the gate. My mind's like, you know what, Jerry? You're... If you just buy, they used to make these eight ounce beers. You could buy an eight pack of Budweiser's, of eight ounce beers, and these little glass bottles. He's like, you know what? If you just drink those small beers, you'd probably be okay. And a little eight ounce beer, different than a tall boy, it can't hurt you too bad. And then something would say, no, nah, man, you need to go straight home. Then that voice would come back. Yeah, there's just little small beers. Then the voice would say, no, go straight home, and the battle would go on, and then uh, I justified it by the, the, the kicker was I was going to buy a Slim Jim and eat that first, and that was coat my stomach. <laughs> yeah, and then you'd be okay, and, and that's what happened, right? The insane idea went out, and I pulled into, I'll never forget, I pulled into the quick stop and bought an eight-pack of ponies and a spicy Slim Jim. And I was off to the races. And that's alcoholism. You know, just a few short days later, I'm in the hospital, almost died. And I, I traumatized my family. I put my family in, in some serious legal trouble. I, you know, not to mention the pain and suffering that it caused me. And all of that stuff was pushed aside for the thought that if you drink an eight ounce beer, you'll be okay. It's different. Right? And that's the book calls that plain insanity. And then once I started, I couldn't stop. And that's alcoholism. That 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 plain and simple is alcoholism. I, I uh, the the literature says that we've lost the power of choice in drink. That means I have no choice. That morning, that I woke up that morning and I made a decision. I was going to go straight to work and go straight home. I chose not to drink that morning. And guess what? By that afternoon, I was drunk. I had no choice. There was no, there was no sufficient thought in my mind. I couldn't bring into my mind with sufficient amount of force the pain and the suffering of just a few days ago, with enough force to stop it from taking that first drink. The the literature says we have no defense against the first drink because our minds are obsessed, and you know that's what that means. So I, I have no more choice today than I did then. You give me a choice right now on whether I drink or not, I'm, you, I'm probably going to go drink. I've lost that choice. I've lost that privilege. I'll, I'll leave that up to, to God or somebody else. And, um, and it's important for me to remember that, that I, I don't, I've lost the power of choice. 
and that we'll, t- we'll talk about it later, but I got to have something between me and that first drink or I'm, I'm gone. I'm not going to make it. I mean, that's, that's where the rest of those steps come in, that, that I got to have that power greater than myself in between me and that first drink or I'm going to end up taking the first drink. And, and, you know, I got story after story like that, and that's what happened was I ended up, you know, one, one failed attempt right after another. Of trying to, uh, to to stay sober and and continuous to disappoint people, and attempt suicide one more time, sucked on the exhaust pipe of a 1982 Grand Prix. I don't recommend that <laughs> at all. Rich said something about your best thinking got you here, and that that was kind of a a, a, a false statement. It absolutely is. My, I mean, how does that make sense? My best thinking gets me sucking on the exhaust pipe of a 1982 Grand Prix. I need to remember that because if I think I got some kind of power today or I think I know something, that's exactly what's going to happen. I'm probably going to end up sucking on the exhaust pipe of a 1982 Grand Prix. And the good news about all some of that stuff is I've never had to mange. I forgot to say that. (laughs) And I... I swear, I think as I've aged, that whatever that whatever that stuff was, it's helped my hair. I mean, look at my hair. <laughs> Most people, as you age, your hair gets worse. Mine has gotten better. <laughs> I mean, I don't understand it. I, so I think it actually worked a little bit on something. But, uh, but you know what else I learned through that is that self-knowledge won't keep you sober. I mean, when I got out of the hospital that time, I, I kind of knew I wasn't going to drink again. And I thought I had enough knowledge and enough, you know, will to, to stay sober, and I didn't. I, I absolutely didn't. Fear won't keep you sober. You know, and I can remember, I, I was thinking that, man, I'm, you know, I just got to remember this stuff. And I'm going to remember how, you know, how bad it was. That, that won't keep you sober. You'll forget. You'll forget no matter what. And... Um, you know what happened to me was I, 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 I basically had gotten discharged out of the Air Force and my wife had left and I've lost the house and no car and I came to it at a guy's house and uh, with the idea of I was going to walk and go write a bad check, another bad check at a grocery store, stopped by the bootleggers and then uh, going back to his house and that morning as I was walking down the road, something happened to me. It was like my whole life flashed before my eyes. And uh, it was like this moment of clarity. I wanted to drink, but I didn't want to drink. And I wanted to die, but I didn't want to die. I just turned 22 years old, and I had kind of had these thoughts that, man, your life should just be starting. It shouldn't be ending. And I said two things out loud. I said, there's got to be something better than this. And I said, God, please help me. I can remember that moment just like it's right now. And all I can tell you is I've been sober ever since. And I, I didn't make that happen. Rich talked about it when he first started talking. I didn't make a decision to quit drinking. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I mean, I, I didn't have any say-so in the matter. Something just happened. And... I, at that moment, I mean, I wouldn't have known this at that time, but I just kind of, I became willing to do anything anybody told me to do to stop living that way. 
And if it had been left up to me, I would have gone and wrote the check, stopped by the bootlegger's house and went back to Wayne's house. I mean, that was my plan. As a matter of fact, there wasn't a whole lot going on that morning. I mean, everybody I'd blamed my life on had left, they were gone. And I had really no real responsibility. I was kind of looking forward to getting some more liquor and going to Wayne's house. And for some reason, that plan just stopped by no, really no, no action on mine. And it's like something came down and picked me up, put me on a different path. And I, um, I, 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 uh, I don't know what time we got to stop here, but it don't much matter. I'm, I'm up here. Um, <laughs> the, uh, I remember walk, after I said those two things out, out loud, I looked over and there was a house right here on the corner of the road. And it was real early in the morning. And the door, the main door was open and there was a screen door there and there was, a, there was an, uh, an elderly lady sitting in there in a rocking chair. And I just walked up on the porch. And I can tell you, I, I would have never walked up on somebody's porch in the daylight. I'd sneak up on your porch at night and try to steal something from you or, or break into your house. But, and I asked her if I could use the phone. And she said, yeah. She said, come on in. I went in there and I, I, I called my dad up and I asked him if he'd come pick me up. That wasn't me. I, I mean, I would have never done that. And he reluctantly came and got me. His wife, they were getting ready to go on a family vacation to the beach, and his wife's in the background cussing at him, telling him not to come get me. She was, she was still mad at me. I had stolen the car from her a few weeks before this. And uh, <laughs> they went out to go to work, and there's no car there. And I'm like, well, <laughs> shouldn't have left the key in it. The, uh, but anyway, he, he came and he got me. And, you know, I would have, if you'd have asked me at that moment, I would have told you nobody cared about me and that everybody had given up on me. And he squashed the last lie that I had, which was, which was that nobody cared. And when you, don't, when you run out of lies, all you're left with is the truth. The truth was I'd done a poor job running my life. The truth was I needed some help. And, and, you know, I didn't know what that help was or what it looked like. And when he picked me up, the first thing out of my mouth when I got in the car was, I need some help. And I had, I mean, I had made feeble attempts at getting help before through some stuff, but never really was sincere about any of that. And um, when I said that, it was like his burden lifted off my shoulder. And he knew what to do for some reason. He, and that's when I ended up in that detox. And that guy came in and talked to me and explained to me um, about alcoholism by telling his story and you know I, I realized that 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 what that guy was saying was that I had whatever he was whatever he was talking about I had and then if you'd have asked me though at that minute what was wrong with me I would have told you this and this is why I drank my mom loved my little brother more than she loved me and I had low self esteem and my dad moved me around a lot as a kid, and that led to the low self-esteem. And I, you know, I caught him cheating on my mom several times, and boy, that really just my self-worth just went really bad. And if you lived in that house, you would drink like I did too. And the Air Force promoted drinking, and you know they they have those bars on base, and they give you the alcohol. And the Harney County deputy keeps accusing me of stuff that I've not done, and you know that gives, leads me to drink because I'm full of fear and. 
Uh, you know, if you live with her, my goodness, if you were married to her, you would drink like that too. And 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 I thought that's why I kind of drank the way that I did, and that that's that that's what led to to, to everything. And it was pointed out to me real real simply that that had nothing to do with why I was alcoholic. It had nothing to do with why I would tell myself that I'm going to just drink a couple of beers and stop. And I couldn't. It had nothing to do with why I'm going to stop by Little Jimmy's on the way home and just drink a beer and then go home, and I couldn't. And the reason that I'm an alcoholic is because I'm different than a normal drinker. And that when I drink one, I drink another, and I drink another, and that there's something physically wrong with me. And that, that I was a guy, I wasn't real happy to be sitting in a detox, but I was extremely relieved to find out that I had an illness. I mean, I had been answering, I've been asking that question a long time. Why do I do what I do? You know, why do I keep doing this? The, in the doctor's opinion, it says that any picture of alcohol that leaves out the physical factor is incomplete. And that we must believe that our bodies are as sick as our mind. And that my body is different. And once I drink, when I start drinking, I can't stop. When I start drinking, I can't predict what's wrong with me. And that that's what sits me apart from a normal drinker. That's why I'm alcoholic. It got nothing to do with any of other stuff. And, and, you know, I started to realize that, you know, I, I, I blamed it on, on circumstances. The truth is, I drank when I was happy. I drank when I was sad. I drank when I was broke. I drank when I had money. I drank when she was when we were together. I drank when we were apart. I drank when I had a job. I drank when I didn't have a job. And so, I mean, that tells me that my circumstances have nothing to do with me with me being an alcoholic. And for me, it just simplified things. That I, hey, I've got an illness. My body's different. When I start drinking, I can't stop. Now, if it was as simple as that, you just put the plug in the jug and be good. The problem is I got a mind that tells me it's okay to do all that. And that, the, and that, that, that when it comes, the, the, it does say in the literature that the main problem of the alcohol centers in his mind. Yeah, so my mind is messed up. And that, that I'll, I'll continually convince myself that it's okay to drink. Or I won't think at all and I'll just quickly do it like I did when I crossed the threshold of that, that kitchen when that guy at lunch that time. You know, all the consequences that are centered around taking that first drink are just pushed aside and you just, you just do it. And that I'm beyond human aid that if that's happened to me. And I had experience after experience, all kinds of reasons to not drink, and I would do it. And that, you know, that that's, that's why I'm powerless over alcohol. Because when I start, I can't stop. And I got a mind that tells me that it's okay to do it. And that, that for me, I got to believe that I am beyond human aid. That I have no power when it comes to not drinking. None at all. And no matter how much my mom loves me, no matter how much my wife cares, no matter how hard the Air Force tries, no matter how hard my family tries, no matter how hard the church tries, no matter how hard the, jail, the, the Harney County deputy tries, that, that's insufficient to stop me from drinking. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep doing it. And um, the, if you, the, the good news, the bad news about, the good news about that is that's the first step towards 
towards getting better, and it's the first step towards freedom. The bad news about it is if you, if you admit that and you just stay right there, you're screwed. <laughs> I mean, there ain't no way around it. It is, it is a bad place to be, and it is very expensive. Very expensive step. I've never heard that. i got to remember that one. It's, an exp- it's a damn expensive step. My goodness. Um, but you know what? Out of powerlessness comes hope. Out of powerlessness comes freedom. And, you know, you know, I know without a doubt today that I'm just as powerless today as I was then. And important for me to, to, to understand that. And even in sobriety, the, the, the ability to, to maintain kind of an attitude of being powerless and over life and, and living a surrendered life, for me, it has to do with, have I taken an honest first step? And have I, have I honestly, do I honestly believe that the world's going to happen today, however it's going to happen, and that I can either get on board with it or I can fight it? And if I can have that attitude of, hey, you know what, I'm powerless over what's going to happen today. I don't mean I'm powerless over my actions and, and my ability to, to do things. But I just got to have a surrendered attitude today if I want to get along in this world. And the first step helps me with that. 